Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good morning, everyone. This is Hour 2 of Mornings with Carmen. I'm Peter Kapsner filling in for today. And it is just so fun to be with all of you as part of our Faith Radio family as we get up like this and fix our eyes on Jesus starting our day, deciding to once again pick up our cross and follow him. That's actually part of Luke chapter 14 that we are in as part of the Faith Radio family together. We've been reading the Gospel of Luke. If you've missed out actually on the study of the Gospel of Luke, you can still participate in that with us. Uh, go to MyFaithRadio.com and you can sign up. A number of people, familiar voices you would know from Faith Radio are doing a podcast there to comment on some of these chapters and our very own Angela Smith has also put together a study guide. It really is a great guide to get in to the text. And as we're in Luke 14 this morning, It's uh, maybe ironic, perhaps uh, providential, that the last part of Luke 14 reminds us of the cost of being a disciple. And if you missed the first hour of this program, especially the second half of it, we chatted with Dr. Gary Stratton about the ideas of discipleship and what it means to not just give a pass and a wink and a nod to the words of Jesus, but really take him seriously as our teacher for how to organize a life moving forward. And and that life is really the good life. It's It's a different kind of good life than we perceive of in this world, perhaps in the United States of America. It's a life of wholeness in the midst of absence. It's a life of joy in the midst of sorrow. It's the life of love in the midst of, uh, of hate. It is an indestructible way of life that the things of this world can't ever touch. But in order to start walking in that way of life, it really does mean giving up one's life and starting to follow Jesus. And he reminds us of that in Luke 14, starting in verse 25. It says, large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not love less his father and his mother, his wife and his children, his brothers and his sisters, yes, even love less his entire life. Well, such a person cannot be my disciple. For whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. That's the cost. There's there's one cost for becoming a disciple, and it's your whole life on that. And so Jesus says, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. And Paul, these are really disruptive words if we let them be disruptive, but not in a scary way, in an incredibly invitational way, because Jesus says, I have such a beautiful life. My overflowing way of life can begin to crash into your way of life if you're just willing to give up your way of life. And that overflowing way of life does not mean that our circumstances are going to necessarily get better. It just means that there's this incredible uh, kingdom, eternal kind of life that crashes into our time and space that brings joy and the sorrow or peace and in, in, in the pain or all of these different things. And if I can take a twist on this Please. for just a moment, I look at this and I say, yeah, he's able to ask us to count the cost. Because he, as our Messiah, counted the cost and went through with it to 
to make the kingdom possible. He did. Uh, he counted the cost on our behalf. So he's, what he's asking us to do is small, for, small compared to what he did. And he counted the cost and gave his life for us. That's exactly right. To become a disciple is to become Christ-like. And here's the beauty of what we're celebrating as the word has become flesh and dwelt among us during this time of Christmas is, yes, Jesus did come to die. But that death was just the precursor for why he ultimately came, and that was to triumph over sin and death. And so that tomb is empty. Easter Sunday did happen. He was resurrected, and he promises us that just as I have been raised, you too will be raised. And then he says these incredible words in Romans Romans 8, that if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, how much more will he bring his way of life into your mortal bodies? There is a great promise here in the discipleship journey. If we're willing to extract ourselves out from all of the, the crazy ways our world including even our country, thinks about life and shalom and peace and wholeness and are willing to give up our life, pick up that cross. It isn't just a life of burden and sorrow. It's a life in which the actual joy and completeness can come into the midst of it. This is the invitation this morning from Luke 14. Up next, we've got Justin Gibney, regular contributor to the show from the Ann Campaign. And Justin just sent us an article about 25 minutes ago about what we can learn from the Black Church related to conversations on freedom. And so we're going to swim around in that real time next on Mornings Without Carmen. Welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Peter Kapsner filling in for today. It's about 10 minutes past the top of the hour here on the 14th of December. And that music means we are joined by regular contributor to the show, Justin Gibney. Good morning, Justin. Hey, good morning. It's always great to hear your voice. I know you sent about 25 minutes ago an article that is titled, The Black Church Can Depolarize Religious Freedom. What does this uh, article even, what, what does this headline mean, Justin? I haven't even had a chance to really get into it. So, so just what, what is behind this article? What do you see in it? Yeah, I mean, well, the first thing I, I think that's important is I truly believe that Christians and, and the different contexts that we come from, biblical Christians, have a lot to learn from one another. Uh, that, that God gives us somewhat different perspectives and puts us in different contexts. And uh, through those perspectives, we we see the gospel more fully. And when it comes, you know, the end campaign talks a lot about uh, civic engagement. Uh, one of the big issues in the in the church that we're facing uh, just in general is the conversation about religious liberty. Uh, and one of the things that I'm trying to get at in the article is that the the culture war framework is not the best way to approach the religious liberty uh, conversation or debate. Uh, I think a better way to approach it would be in a way that you saw kind of in the civil rights movement, to approach it uh, with grace, to approach it maybe with with different messengers. So it's not all all about the hangups between ideological conservatives and ideological progressives, but you can bring in people who aren't invested in the culture war to talk about the importance of um, uh, religious liberty without all the hangups and without all the baggage. And so what does that look like? How do, you, how do you begin to invite those kind of conversations, Justin? I think first by inviting different people to the table. Uh, I think uh, some folks that would be helpful and some folks that, uh, you know, the Ann campaign, you know, that's our context is bringing people from the black church perspective who do care about uh, religious liberty and those issues because it impacts the church, but would talk about it in a different, different perspective. So it st- starts with bringing those folks to the table and listening to, to what they have to say, being able to engage 
people who disagree with you without so much contempt, mm. right? With without uh, the same labels and things of that nature, and be able to see their point of view, and also understand that if we're talking about religious liberty, it's about protecting everyone and not just Christians. Uh, and so I think that the black church would have something to say about that, and it could be helpful to the overall conversation. Yeah, I think you're right about that. I, as you're talking, it's calling to mind a situation I found myself when I was part of a megachurch staff a number of years ago, and, and part of the lead of that staff said that as we're developing a sense of community here in terms of how we're going to do our lives together, the first thing that we are going to make sure that we adhere to is this idea of mutuality. And I talk about this a lot because at first I was really puzzled by that idea. I thought, really, well, I don't even know what mutuality means. But she began to draw out the idea that I'm going to take your point of view as seriously as I take my own. And Justin, I think it's so interesting how many conversations we get into where we may not know it, but we seem like we're loaded for bear with our own point of view. And we're going to maybe enter into a conversation, but it's almost always subtly or overtly pressing our own point of view on somebody else in a variety of ways. Uh, what is the discipline like where you can actually become the kind of mature person that can genuinely sit back and listen to another point of view. Because the point of view of the black church in this example, as you suggested, is going to be very different than the points of view of maybe some other ministry environments. But it's it's incumbent upon all of us to really take each other seriously. How, how do you even begin to do that if you're the kind of person who's mostly in conversations to assert your point of view? Yeah, I mean, I think you just generally have to understand that if you want people to listen to you, you have to listen to them. And that there's nothing to be afraid of. Uh, sometimes we don't listen to other people or want to give them a voice because we're afraid of what they have to say. But if we're truly uh, comfortable with who we are, if we're confident in our uh, place in the kingdom, confident in who uh, in our Christian identity and confident in what we know from the Bible, then we don't have to be afraid of other perspectives. We can hear them out and we can disagree or we can agree, but at least we respect people uh, by hearing them out. And, and a good friend of mine, Lisa Fields, says that listening is an act of love. And sometimes mm -hmm. if we're going to love our neighbor, we have to hear them out. The other thing I would say, it's, it's more than just hearing them, but also advocating for them and their rights in the same way and with the same determination as we would do for ourselves. And I think that's something else that we can pull kind of from that, that civil rights legacy. Yeah, I think you're right. There, There is um, a legacy of humility that is required. And humility does not mean woe is me. It doesn't mean that we have no perspective. But I think it means, Justin, what you just said, is that somebody else has a point of view. And even, even if I don't understand that point of view, if that point of view is in alignment with Scripture and God's kingdom, that uh, even if it's unfamiliar to me, I want to advocate for that as hard as I'm advocating for anything that I personally might feel passionate about. Because at the end of the day, man, we're, we're all limited in our points of view. We all see through a glass darkly. And if we can't practice humility with one another, it's really hard to then advocate for one another. That, that's exactly right. And again, I, I, again, I think it comes down to, to really loving your neighbor. And really loving your neighbor isn't just telling them what you think is right and wrong. It's hearing them out and understanding that you don't have all the answers and they may have a perspective that benefits you. Uh, and that's just part of of getting to know people, building relationship and really caring about the person and not just the point that you have to make. I remember, Justin, that I was a little embarrassed by my lack of compassion for people. I think it was in my early 30s. And I thought, you know, God, it seems like when I read the scripture that you actually have compassion for people. And, and I'm not sure that I really do. Uh, would you help me see people through the lens with which you see them? And let's just say I wasn't prepared for the journey of uh, taking of going inward with God into my own sinfulness and idolatry 
and the, and and self absorption, I suppose, on so many levels. This this can be a starting point, right? If you're if you're thinking, gosh, I really would like to become a person that can humbly enter into the views of others. It doesn't mean I agree with them all the time. It just simply means I can enter in humility. Sometimes that's going to require some pretty difficult surgery in our own hearts, it seems to me. Yeah, and and in our brokenness, I think we all have a lot to be humble about. Uh, And if we're not not prideful, if we we truly reckon with with our issues, somebody's being gracious to us. Somebody's showing us some grace in, in hearing us out because none of us have all that much credibility when you look at our brokenness and the mistakes that we all have made. Uh, and so that's important to keep in mind as well. Yeah, I guess so we're talking with Justin Gibney this morning about how we can bring some reconciliation through the lens of humility to so many of the polarized conversations of our day. We'll step away for just a moment. And when we come back, Justin, I would love to get your take on what we see within the criminal justice system as well. I know there's a lot of conversation happening about criminal justice reforms and what we need to see with one another that both protects society, but also protects the individual and, and can help bring back a sense of wholeness. So stay with us. Mornings, uh, more to come on Mornings Without Carmen here on the 14th of December. Hark the hell angels sing Glory to the newborn king Oh, Paul, that is one of my favorite Christmas carols right there. I just get the image that of the skies breaking open and the shepherds singing uh, the birth of the newborn king. And welcome back to Mornings Without Carmen. and Peter Kapsner filling in for this morning. We're talking with Justin Gibney from the Anne Campaign, who does a great job carving out space in the middle of the polarization of our country to talk about things from a kingdom standpoint. And Justin... I'd be interested to get your take on some of the conversations around criminal justice reform and, and how we understand how to move forward in the midst of this, because it seems like the polarizing options that we hear about in, in sort of the extreme news organizations is that one side just wants to empty the prisons and the other side wants to be really punitive and, and keep everybody locked up. But it seems to me that these are false choices. What do you see in this conversation? Yeah, I do think those are false choices. Uh, Criminal justice presents the Christian with a tension that I think we always have to be uh, diligent in kind of evaluating and examining. We can never get comfortable because we can go too far to one side or the other. We know that uh, when people commit crimes and they violate others and they violate uh, just the social contract that we have, that they need to be punished. Uh, That is a reality. And I think anyone who thinks that by not punishing people, you're, you're helping society by not putting some people uh, out of society for a while uh, that you're helping is, is very naive. But at the same time, and I think the history of America shows, if we're not thoughtful about how much time people are given, about the conditions that they're given, about uh, what crimes, you know, what, what, someone, what amount of time someone deserves for a certain crime, then we can be v- violating their human dignity. Just because someone commits a crime doesn't mean any amount of time is okay and any type of treatment is okay. And so we always need to be evaluating our system. And so the Ann campaign is committed to making sure that we get the church involved as much as we can uh, with with other uh, organizations to make sure the church is paying attention to criminal justice, because we know that the Bible, for one, is full of uh, unjust imprisonment, imprisonments and all this other things. And we don't want that to happen to people. And so we want to make sure that we're vigilant. We want to make sure that we're deliberate about making sure people are treated fairly within that system and not running away from that tension, 
but finding uh, justice within the tension uh, that I mentioned earlier. Yeah, over the years, I've run in a lot of believers within Christendom, Justin, that really do have a passionate heart for people that are incarcerated and, and want to see some help and wholeness and light. And a lot of success stories in that in terms of, of people beginning to follow Jesus and, and really beginning to shift and change in their life. If people are listening and thinking, gosh, I would love to be involved in some of those conversations. Do you have some, some principles, some ideas, some thoughts, some things that you've seen that is most helpful? Because it, I assume it can't be about some sort of savior complex. It needs to be anchored in a different place if people want to get involved. Yeah, I mean, for one, you know, there, there are several principles that we have to talk about. For one is accountability. Are people being held accountable for what they do so that, you know, they don't go around violating others? We also need to look at things like proportionality. You know, how do, how do we make sure things are proportional? Uh, the AND campaign has worked with other organizations to create what we call the Prayer and Action Justice Initiative. And you can uh, look that up. There's a web- website and all that for all that, uh, where we're saying, how do Christians engage this? Uh, one of the ways that we've been talking about engaging is looking at juvenile uh, probation reform. Uh, in a lot of ways, juvenile probation uh, uh, works in a way that just isn't better for the kid. It's not teaching them the, the lesson that they need to learn, and they get violated in ways that keeps them in the system instead of putting them in a place to get out of the criminal system and, and never go back. And so I know there are a lot of uh, faith-based organizations that are looking at juvenile probation reform as a way to make sure that we're caring for our, our children, but really making sure that we're just a mo- more just society. And that when we do feel like we have to punish people, that it's done in a way that can be constructive. Yeah, take us into that at the ground level a little bit more. Let's pretend that I'm 15 years old and I commit some sort of lower level crime, uh, maybe a heavy misdemeanor or a lower level felony. What might happen then when you talk about the reform that's needed? What might happen to me moving forward that's not necessarily terribly helpful? Yeah, I mean, sometimes it's about the reporting. And so how often do you have to report? Are you able to even get to where you need to report at, right? Mm. Um, are, are you able to, to go to school? Are there certain um, standards that you have to meet that as a minor, you're just not able to meet without the help of parents, which in some instances aren't able to give you as much support as, as they need to for, for various reasons. And so it's a, it's a broad review because obviously in, in different jurisdictions you have different rules, but I think there's time for a broad review to make sure that these are constructive measures, even if they need to be punished. It, it, can, it gives the kid an opportunity to do better and to, to turn and go in a different direction. So is there a real practical way that people could get involved in the lives of other people to just help that process? That's really intriguing when you think about the day-to-day life of somebody who maybe, again, as a juvenile, committed some sort of felony, but then is, is not necessarily empowered, even if they want to, to be able to abide by the terms of their probation. Is there a real practical way somebody could get involved to just help in that process? Yeah, I mean, mentoring is big. Uh, mm. Kids need mentors. And sometimes when the parent can't step step up and give the advice or take the kid to where they need to go to, sometimes a mentor can or sometimes uh, tutors. Many kids get in these situations because, that you know, they, they don't feel like they can learn in their schools. Uh, there's a number of ways that the church can get involved. But if you're talking about the uh, particular policy, again, it, it differs from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. And so sometimes you just have to organize a group and look at what uh, your the policy in your jurisdiction says uh, it may be a policy it may be a policy that needs to be revised and in many cases you don't actually have to get new legislation 
it's actually something that can be done within the discretion of judges and prosecutors. And so it gives a chance, uh, it gives the church a, a chance to really make some differences without necessarily always going through the legislative process, which we know can take a long time. No, Justin, I think that's entirely helpful. Thanks for that perspective on that. As we wrap up here, any specific thing you're going to be doing for Christmas this year? Yeah, you know, I'm be spending a lot of time with my boys, uh, so I'm I'm looking forward to that. Uh, maybe even doing a little bit of traveling, uh, but certainly as I, as I as I told Paul before, we we're reading through Luke as well as we speak, so we're enjoying that too. I love it. Well, have a great and Merry Christmas. Thanks so much for all of the ways in which you've helped uh, the people, a part of the Faith Radio family here over these uh, last few years, and just appreciate the way that you're carving out space in the midst of some heated conversations. Have a great Christmas, Justin. Merry Christmas. Take care. Take a short break and have some bottom of the hour news where we'll feature again the great giveaway that we're doing at Faith Radio. So stay tuned for more instructions about that. In the second half of this hour, I'll be joined by author Rod Dreher and we'll talk about the Benedict option related to some of the future of the church. Well, this is the last week you can sign up to be part of the great giveaway here at Faith Radio. I love what we're doing. And this as Christians, our acts of kindness are intentional. We share God's love with a hurting world. Boy, we need a lot more of that. And so go to MyFaithRadio.com this morning. Sign up to be one of a thousand people joining that movement. You'll get some inspirational cards to hand out as well. We're making a difference. You also get into a drawing for a $50 gift card. I am always, Paul Perot, a sucker for a $50 gift card. (laughs) The acts of kindness is the important part here of course, but that there is the $50 gift card as well. Well, I, I just want people to join because what a great way to share a little love this Christmas. It's been a dark year it again. Has been. It has been. So, boy, what a time for you to be hopefully one of a thousand people who join us here at Faith Radio doing acts of kindness. And you don't have to wait for the cards. No, you, you can go online not. and sign up and get the the cards that you can hand out while you're doing acts of kindness. But you don't have to wait because we want to have a big celebration this Friday. So get out, do some good words, let us know about it. Let us know by joining us and sign up at uh, life, uh, on uh, at MyFaithRadio.com. Yeah, I love the celebration we're going to do on the 17th of December then at 3 p.m. Central. Yeah, this Friday with Susie, Carmen, and Bill. We're going to hear some of those stories, and that'll just be a great place of light in the midst of this Christmas time. Well, up next, we'll be joined with, by Rod Dreher. We'll talk about his book, The Benedict Option, which he wrote a few years ago, but seemed to be eerily prescient about the future of the church and maybe how we're going to organize ourselves as we meet the demands in the upcoming generation. This is Max Lucado, Joseph, the quiet father of Jesus. Rather than make a name for himself, he made a home for Christ. And because he did, a great reward came his way. He called his name Jesus. Cue up the millions who have spoken the name of Jesus. And look at the person selected to stand at the front of the line. Joseph, of all the saints, sinners, prodigals, and preachers who have spoken the name, Joseph, a blue-collar, small-town construction worker, said it first. He cradled the wrinkled-faced Prince of Heaven and, with an audience of angels and pigs, whispered, Jesus, you'll be called Jesus. Seems right, don't you think? Joseph gave up his name, so Jesus let Joseph say his. God hunts for Joseph, through whom he can deliver Christ into the world.
It is about 21 minutes before the top of the hour. This is Dr. Peter Kapsner filling in for Carmen LaBerge this morning, and we are joined by author Rod Dreher this morning, who released a book not long ago called The Benedict Option, and then the subtitle is A Strategy for Christians in a post-Christian nation. Thought it was prescient about the future related to the church and how we're going to organize ourselves as we continue to participate in Jesus's eternal and indestructible kingdom. Good morning, Rod. Good morning. Great to have you on the program. I'd love for you to start out by just defining for us what you mean by a post-Christian nation. Well, I don't mean that Christians no longer exist. We're (laughs) clearly all still here, thank God. But, um, What I mean is that we have become a country that no longer looks to Christ and the Bible to tell us who we are. Uh, You know, it's if we think back to the civil rights era, Dr. Martin Luther King preached uh, as a Baptist preacher. He used biblical language and phrasing in his appeals to the nation to grant African-American civil rights. And that was understood by America back then. Today, that would be impossible because so many people have either fallen away from the faith or they no longer have that basic biblical knowledge. And that is going to have social and political repercussions and already is. Yeah, it clearly is. I think that the the level of biblical awareness among my generation of students that I teach with in Bible theology programs and, and Christian ministries uh, due to a large part in their disinterest in even attending the existing version of organized church really is pervasive. And so how do we begin to shift that tide? Because again, this Rod can seem like a bit of a hopeless conversation. And I know a lot of parents and grandparents understandably are saying, oh dear, how, what's going to happen to my kids in this world? How do we do this? And and I, I think we can't underestimate the, chain, the change that's required for them in terms of how we organize ourselves, but we can't also underestimate the power of the kingdom in the midst of this. So how do we understand where we're going to head moving forward if the next generation isn't terribly interested in joining the church as it has organized itself the last 30 or 40 years, but still have a great deal of hope for them? Well, that's a big question. It um, is a big question. Yeah, no, there is no silver bullet. That's the problem. I was talking with uh, a guy just the other day over dinner, a Jewish friend who has, says that you know they're seeing the same thing happen in Judaism. And he said, parents want a silver bullet, and there is no silver bullet. But that doesn't mean we're without hope. <clears throat> I mean, I, I, what I start out telling folks is that for Christians, hope is not the same thing as optimism. Hmm. Uh, hope is rather the idea that um, even if we have to suffer— that as long as we suffer for Christ and in Christ and through Christ, that our suffering will have meaning, that the Lord can use it to redeem the world. And that, I think, is a kind of hope that we have to have going forward. I mean, you've seen the same polls that I have. Generation Z and the millennials are falling away from the church at rapid rates. They're not becoming atheists, by the way. They're rather falling into the New Age, into the occult, into some or into some sort of like that religion that they put together themselves. So there is still hope there. They're, they haven't lost faith in in the spiritual. But uh, we are going to have to, we in the church, are going to have to de- uh, embrace a kind of faith, a kind of living out of the faith that is countercultural, strongly countercultural. We are going to have to equip our young people and ourselves, frankly, to withstand the attacks from everywhere. We're going to have to equip them to suffer for the faith. You know, the more recent book I published is called Live Not By Lies, and 
It's based on interviews I did with Christian dissidents in the communist world in Russia and former Eastern Europe to ask them, how can we in the West prepare for what's coming at us? And the main lesson they had was prepare yourselves to suffer for Christ. That's the only way. I, I stood on a street corner in Moscow a couple of years ago talking to an elderly Baptist pastor, white-haired man, who had suffered so much for the faith under communism. He looked me square in the eye and said, you go back to America and tell the church that if you're not prepared to suffer for Jesus, your faith means nothing. That was incredible. Mm. But, um, but unfortunately, that's the only way forward is uh, is to prepare our kids with a faith that doesn't tell them that Jesus wants to be your best friend, Jesus is going to help you live your best life now, that's going to fall apart. You need something deeper. Yeah, there's so much in what you just said there, Rod, about the organization of the church moving forward and what we can learn from other countries and, and their, what their experience has been. I know that my daughter, <clears throat> Anna, moved overseas this last year, and she's studying in Europe, which a lot of social observers would say that when you you observe places like France or Germany or the United Kingdom, you, you see a bit of the future of what the church might look like in the United States, meaning that there just really isn't organized church to speak of in most of those countries, big brands, big institutions, big businesses, none of those things exist. And she even said, she, as she was talking with some of our friends over there that are part of a church community, she said, I am so not interested in becoming some part of some ministry where I'm getting persuaded by brand management to give money to that organization. And they looked at her and they were terribly puzzled by it. They said, Anna, we've long ago lost social power in our context. We're not even interested in building those kinds of things. We want to be a group of people living faithfully together in fellowship at the risk of being misunderstood. We'll probably suffer a bit for our faith, at least on the front end. It's it's not in Europe like it is in, in Moscow or China right now. But we just simply want to live a way of life together that shines a light in our local community and, and be a little bit more parish-minded than business-minded she it, it was as as if she had and she's grown up in my house where we talk about these things all the time and it, it was almost as if yeah. she had never heard of something so counterintuitive and yet in her mind seemed faithful to to how we're meant to be together oh you know you saying that uh, reminds me that my book the benedict option has done very very well in europe and uh, whenever i go over there and talk to people when i talk to people my age christians my age i'm 54 they don't understand the Benedict option. They think it's giving up. It's, you know, they, they, they're really negative about it. But when I talk to Christians there who are, say, age 40 and under, they totally get it. Hmm. Because if you're that age and you're still in church, it's because you love Jesus. There is nothing to be gained socially from doing that. In fact, you may suffer, but they love Christ so much, and they're looking for ways to organize and to live um, in faithful community uh, amid this, uh, this uh, not only indifference, but active hostility to small old Orthodox Christianity. And uh, it's the weirdest thing. I, <laughs> I have to actually convince American audiences that, no, 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 this is true. The things I'm trying to tell you are coming at us are true. In Europe, they don't need to be convinced because they've been living it. Yeah, we're talking with Rod Dreher this morning on his book, The Benedict Option, and thinking about the future of the church. Rod, one more point on this before we talk specifically after the break about what it means to head into a different kind of life, an actual life we can live together. Uh, there is this this sense in which so many organizations are competing against one another and sort of this blending together of capitalism has met the church, meaning that there might be five ministries trying to compete for different eyeballs and different money. And, and that's part of even why we see 
the organized church beginning to decline in the United States is, is again, young people are just simply weary of, of being competed for through marketing and persuasion to try to gain their eyeballs and their money. Yeah, I think that's true. You know, I am an Eastern Orthodox Christian, which is kind of a weird denomination here in America. We, we go back to the early church. But we have seen over the last few months in our little parish here in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, uh, an astonishing number of young people, high school kids and, and kids just out of college, coming to our church. And you ask them, we're glad to see you, but why are you here? And they all say to a man and woman, that they want something real, that this feels real. They're not being marked to, they're being called out of themselves to something greater. And uh, we were just being what Orthodox Christians are supposed to be. But finally, something about the COVID thing woke these kids up. And, and one guy told me, he said, I want to be part of a church that's going to be able to stand firm when the persecution starts. Rod, let's step away for just a minute. When we come back, let's talk a little bit about uh, some of the positive aspects of this and how we can organize our lives together to be able to withstand that from a real authentic sense of a lived faith empowered by the Spirit as we follow Jesus in this world. We're chatting with Rod Dreher, the author of The Benedict Option here on Mornings with Carmen. I'm Peter Kapsner filling in for today. Ten minutes before the top of the hour here on Mornings Without Carmen, we're talking with Ron Dreher about his book, The Benedict Option, and I think it gives us a really helpful blueprint for what we can see in a post-Christendom kind of society. And Ron, during the break, you and I were talking a little bit about some words that I read in a book. I think it was called Following the Call. I don't remember the exact name of the book, but recently, and and they haunt me, Rod. It says something to the effect of that as soon as ministries take those first steps in marketing and in brand management and trying to persuade through those means and mechanisms, it's also the first step towards the loss of power, authentic power in the kingdom. And at the end of the day, God isn't mocked. He's not going to compete with our little ideas about how to market stuff. And, and it's really haunted me in terms of what we're going to see moving forward. Yeah, it's so tragic what's happening today. It's as if so many churches have adopted uh, corporate strategies, and that's not going to get people into the kingdom, and it's not going to help give people what they need to withstand persecution if it comes, and it is coming. Uh, We need something deeper, something more authentic, something more based in the historical experience of the church under persecution. In your book, The Benedict Option, talks a little bit about how we can organize ourselves into different kinds of communities and rhythms and, and following Jesus, maybe in much more of a of a parish-oriented kind of mindset, meaning that we're ministering within our local neighborhoods. Kind of take us into to an, an overview, anyway, of what you see in terms of how Christians have been doing their life together in other countries and maybe how that can instruct us moving forward. Well, the idea for the the name for the concept, the Benedict Option, comes from St. Benedict of Nursia, who was a young Christian who was sent down to the city of Rome not long after the Roman Empire fell, like in the year 500. And uh, what he saw shocked him so much, he was afraid that if he stayed in Rome, he was going to lose his faith. So he went out to the woods and lived in a cave for three years, prayed, read scripture, fasted, and asked God what to do with his life. When he came out, he start, He wrote this thing called The Rule of St. Benedict, which was just a, a guide for how to live in community together. And over the next few centuries, the monasteries that came up uh, uh, among men and women who wanted to live by the rule 
made an enormous difference in preserving Christianity through the barbarian periods known as the Dark Ages. I say we need to see what the Benedict uh, option, the Benedict example, has to say to all of us Christians today, whether we're Catholic, Orthodox, or Protestant. And one of the main things it has to say to us is we have to live in community. It doesn't mean we have to live in a commune. We're not <laughs> monks. We're not nuns. But and I, I would not be able to survive that. <laughs> Me it neither. Does, it does say that we can't be lone wolves here, that we need each other. We need the the experience of worshiping Christ and suffering for Christ and with Christ and serving the world together. We also need spiritual discipline. That is one of the main things that's so difficult to, to get across to modern Americans, the idea that we have to stick with spiritual disciplines. I, I once gave a talk at a, an evangelical college and about the importance of spiritual discipline. A young woman raised her hand and said, why isn't it enough to love Jesus with all our hearts the way our parents told us to? I said, well, that's where it starts. But if we don't put that into daily practice with fidelity to prayers and worship, then when times get hard, we're going to fall away. The spiritual discipline is a form of training. It's not vain repetition. It's a form of training yourself to stick with it no matter what. And that point of community, Rod, to be able to be disciples in the midst of community, I when we actually read the Bible or when I, when I find myself actually reading the Bible, I think, oh, wow, my way of life is perhaps oh, a wee bit different than what I'm reading here. And I've recently been compelled by Acts chapter 2, where it talks about that the early evangelism of the early church was demonstrated in their lived lives together. Now, now clearly they could tell the story about God becoming flesh and dwelling among us and dying on a cross and breaking the power of sin and death on Easter, but it was less about that story and more about their lived lives together that demonstrated that story in the world through their lives of love for one another. And, and so it hit me, Rod, that if love is the heartbeat of God's kingdom, it might actually need another person <laughs> to be involved with. Thus, a community is not some option where I church shop to try to find people like me or programs that I like. It is the live lives of, of us together day in and day out. And I don't know how to do that when I'm setting up adult play dates with my best friends that are 20 minutes away from me versus the people who are next door. I, I don't even know how to reform all of this. But to your point, the community really is the heart uh, of the faith experience. Yeah, that really is true. And we, I, I go to a very small church. We have maybe 30, 40 people in our congregation, and that's just because of our particular denomination. It's not big in the South. Uh, nevertheless, I have really come to see the value of a small church because you know everybody. And, uh, and when people are sick, everybody knows it and can come out to help them. It's been a real blessing for me and, uh, and for my family. But I have to say, though, that I, I think that we are in so much trouble in our country today because we have been, been accustomed to easy Christianity. I mean, I'm guilty of it, too. You know, we, we've never faced any persecution or anything like that. But now, even if there is no persecution from the state, even if that were not to happen, the fact is we're losing our young people because they see no purpose to the way we live out Christianity. You know, I, in the book, I talk about something that Pope Benedict XVI, I'm not a Catholic, but he said something really interesting. In 1969, when he was just a young priest, he said that the church is going to lose all of its power, all of its money, and be reduced to a small uh, a small group, but that small group of true believers will be the ones that keep the light on in the darkness. And a world that has grown cold, 
will see that light and the warmth that comes out of the love of the Christian believers and come back to Christ. That is my hope, you know, that as you say, the lived experience counts for everything. We're not, it's very hard to get young people or anybody today to listen to proposition-based apologetics. They just don't believe it, but it's very hard to get them to, to forget the beauty of a true community of Christ existing in love. Now, Rod, that's great stuff. If you're part of the, the Faith Reader family listening this morning, I would highly recommend picking up the book, The Benedict Option. It's really helpful for carving out space moving forward. Rod, I hope you have a great Christmas. Thanks for the work that you're doing and look, looking forward to catching up again soon. Merry Christmas. Take a short break and wrap up our show here for the 14th of December. Well, some hard topics this morning here on the 14th of December over these two hours as we got into the political scene a bit as well as the future of the church. These are not easy things to wonder about and to puzzle about, but just remind ourselves yet again that we serve a king of an eternal kingdom. His way is beauty and light and hope, and it will persist as it has persisted for generations. It will persist until the end, and he will one day return and collect his bride. We'll catch you tomorrow morning again, everybody, on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.